The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Why do rival car makers suddenly want to drive off with Fiat Chrysler? Apple's much tight bite into TV, news and finance tastes a bit sour. And can Huawei's charm offensive succeed? These are the stories we'll be tackling on The Views Room, a podcast by Reuters financial commentary team at Breaking Views. Later in the show, we'll let our colleagues in Hong Kong delve into the Chinese telecom giant's attempts to fight back against US spying allegations. Let's get the wheels turning, though, by looking at what's becoming a race for Italian-American carmaker Fiat Chrysler. Last week, reports emerged that Peugeot had approached its rival, only to be rebuffed. Now Renault seems to be interested, though has its own issues with partner Nissan to deal with. Do either of these deals make sense? Would Fiat Chrysler be better off looking elsewhere, exploring joint ventures or even staying on its own? To help steer me through all of this, I'm joined on the line by our two Europe-based car heads, Lisa Jokic in Milan. Hi, Lisa. Hello. And in London, we've got Liam Proud. Welcome back to the both of you. Welcome, Liam. Hi, Anthony. Hi, Lisa. So, Lisa, let me start with you. What we're seeing now with these two potential interested parties coming along is what former Fiat Chrysler boss Sergei Marchionne, who died last year, would have loved, I think. Uh, he was always the most vocal about the need for car makers to merge, uh, not least in his 2015 pitch that I think we all remember very well, the Confessions of a Capital Junkie, which, where his main argument was, look, there are a lot of us chasing the same thing, there's a lot of overcapacity in the industry, and we're all replicating a lot of R&D and other costs that, frankly, don't make any of us stand out. So why don't we merge and do big deals. And I think GM was always the big one back then he was talking about. But he was always continually rebuffed. So Lisa, first question to you. What's changed? Is it just that Sergio is no longer on the scene or is it more fundamental? Well, I would say two things. I mean, certainly the fact that uh, Sergio is um, sadly no longer around uh, may have indeed, um, you know, sped up this this kind of talks. Uh, uh, I mean, Sergio was, as you said, I mean, the most vocal proponent of mergers within the car industry sector. But at the same time, he was quite an imposing figure um, as a CEO and so potentially a hurdle himself uh, to some of these deals. I mean, the second point I would like to make is that compared to his capital junkie speech, um, there is probably a greater realization that the cost of sustaining um, high-tech development that the car industry needs is much higher today. So maybe the need for bigger tie-ups is, is more pressing. So Liam, why is Renault getting involved now? Why are we seeing their name pop up when they have a lot of other things they've got to deal with? Well, the, the caveat is to say that, I mean, it's, it's not 100% clear that Renault is getting involved, but there's, there's, there's a story in the Financial Times basically saying that the, the new Renault management, um, so this is the the CEO and the chairman that have replaced Carlos Ghosn, who, who's been um, stuck in Japan facing charges of financial impropriety. This new team might try and, first of all, merge with Nissan, with which they have this slightly kind of uneven, lopsided partnership where they build some cars together. And then, in the second stage of this kind of two-step merger, would try and um, merge with FCA, Fiat Chrysler, um, the Italian-American car maker we've just been talking about. Um, so that's the idea. I mean, is that plausible? I find it hard to believe. I mean, the, the sort of the, the necessary first stage of that is is an absolutely mammoth task in itself. I mean, a lot of people think that the reason Nissan decided to kind of snap back against Carlos Ghosn 
was that he was trying to push for a merger, which they didn't want. So it's not really clear that much has changed in that regard, that they're suddenly ready to acquiesce to the French. Okay. So, I mean, Lisa, back to you on this one. The, the first of the two countries to come out uh, was Peugeot, which, I think, as I mentioned earlier, that would, if there were a deal with Fiat Chrysler, it would marry not just the French car maker, but also the German car maker Opel, which was mm-hmm. owned by General Moses, bought by Peugeot a couple of years ago. And Opel, of course, was the unit that, that um, Sergio Marchioni really wanted to, to, to get involved with in 2008 at the same time as he was chasing um, Chrysler. Um, so that would seem to be a nice little tie-up for him. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Antonin, I mean, what you say is is very true. And, and certainly, I think, you know, it doesn't fundamentally address two of FCA's weakest points. And one being um, the lack of presence in Asia. Uh, FCA, you know, is virtually nowhere in Asia, but so is PSA. And the other issue, I'm not so sure that it would really be a step up for um, the, the Italian-American car maker in terms of uh, improving its high-tech uh, proposition, so electrification, but even sort of self-driving car further down the line. The, the other thing you mentioned is uh, obviously the cost cuts. I mean, there could be potentially large cost cuts because there will be overlaps in Europe. But, you know, how feasible is it that you can really slash costs in places like France and Italy um, nowadays? I mean, Italy, let's remember that, has a as an anti-austerity, quite radical government mm. that probably wouldn't like that. And, and we have social unrest in the form of the gilet jaune in France. So even though Tavares is a good cost cutter, I mean, how far can, can he go? The, the final comment I would make is it seems to me that such a deal would be more of a boon, if you want, for PSA than for Fiat Chrysler, because uh, PSA would get access to the American market through this deal. I mean, they, they want to do a comeback there um, and, and they could get it. But, you know, what does FCA exactly get in return? And whereas you might you might think it's it's sort of the other way around with the Renault Nissan um, potential idea. I mean, even even if it's implausible, you you, you might imagine that um, John Elkan, the the chairman of Fiat, would rather take some shares in a, in a bigger combined Fiat Chrysler Renault Nissan group because, as you say, Lisa, he'd he'd be getting on this uh, electric vehicle kick. They're 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 quite far advanced in terms of electric vehicles relative to Peugeot and Fiat. Um, and you know, importantly, he'd he'd have some exposure to to Asia, where the, in general terms, the car market is a bit quicker growing. The the issues that Fiat Chrysler is facing, I think you've identified them. Let's just list them, though. Um, they've got issues with. Um passenger cars not being um, profitable enough in Europe. They're not big enough, uh, if, if at all, anywhere, particularly in Asia. And they're way behind on electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles, a point that Sergio Marchioni first, oh, for a long time, pushed back against. And then in sort of last year of his his time there, he basically said, yeah, we need to do a lot more joint ventures, basically. Um, so none of these deals, it seems, would solve that. Fear, uh, uh, Renault-Nissan would get it some EV uh, exposure and exposure to Asia, but wouldn't get them into uh, well, and would, wouldn't get them necessarily fast enough along the path that maybe they would get from doing a deal with General Motors or Ford or Volkswagen. Mm. Um, but it would solve some of the issues. Whereas also Peugeot would solve uh, some European issues again if the cost cuts can come out, which would be the reason for doing it. But would leave them still sort of chasing. So, is there any one deal that you guys think you can identify which would solve? More problem, more of, of fear crisis issues, or even all of them. Lisa, I, how about I, you first? Yeah, well, I I'm still intrigued by the idea of a 
potential tie-up between GM and Fiat Chrysler. As you know, GM was the ideal uh, partner for Sergio, but you know Sergio got rebuffed when when he tried um, that avenue. Uh, I kind of, you know, I'm not 100% sure that it would solve all of the issues, but certainly would go a long way because uh, um, GM is uh, present in Asia, is quite strong. I mean, they seem more advanced than FCA in, uh, um, let's say, the, the sort of technological developments we've been talking about. But more importantly, I think you you would be able to extract synergies in America. Now, um, it's normally easier than in Europe to to do those kind of cost cuttings, even though obviously in the Trump era, uh, it may be more difficult. But at the same time, I wonder whether politicians in America may be mollified at the thought of uh, having, you know, such a large car maker made in America. So, you know, such a merger would create probably the largest player in the world in the business. Would you stand in the way of that? because of, you know, some job losses. That's quite an intriguing prospect, and it's obviously got some kind of historical oomph behind it. But, I mean, I'd just, just throw it back on you, Anthony. You, you, you've expressed some doubt about that idea of a, of a Fiat, Chrysler, General Motors kind of get-together. Is, is it, you know, from, from your place, you know, in, in, in New York, is that something that feels likely for you? Um, well, I, t- I tell you, it, it hasn't come up yet um, over here. It doesn't mean it won't. But my, my, I've got two or three issues with with the, a, a GM Fiat Chrysler tire. One is obviously GM no longer is in Europe since it sold Opel. So the idea that I think Sergio had of cranking out a lot more costs than in any other deal has now diminished significantly because there's no t- there's there's no costs of anything to come out in Europe now. Secondly. And I haven't road tested this yet, sorry for the pun, but if you put GM and Chrysler together, which was mooted actually back um, in 2008 during the crisis when both of them, of course, finally in 2009 went into government-sponsored bankruptcy. The problem there is you would then have by far the most dominant player in SUVs and especially uh, trucks, uh, light trucks. So I'm not sure whether, political issues aside, whether that would get past uh, the regulators. And thirdly, you know, GM is, and this gets into a broader point we should address as well as a group for, for, for the uh, all of these types. GM is far more advanced and far more down the road, usually another pun, on electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles. And it's already got other players in. So it's got SoftBank to kick, I think, $2 billion plus into its autonomous vehicle unit cruise. Honda came in as well with a smaller amount, I think $700 million plus another $2 billion or so to be committed in capital over the next few years. So it's already got money that it doesn't have to go outside to find to fund some of these longer-term developments. Fiat Chrysler, on the other hand, would bring not a lot to the game aside from the idea of being a very big player. And I think that's my, those are my main concerns. But that last point, I think, is one to throw back to you guys as well, which is you know, we can talk about all these types, and everything we've said is how does it solve Fiat Chrysler's issues? But I do wonder, you know, what does Fiat Chrysler, you know, do you really want to take on Fiat Chrysler's problems if you're GM, if you're Ford, if you're um, Peugeot, or if you're Renault Nissan? I mean, you know, it doesn't really get you very far unless, I think, mostly from my point of view, I think it gets you Jeep in, in the US, which is by far the best part of the brand. Yes, Jeep is where most of the earnings come from. Um, I do think, you know, it's a very exciting brand to own. And uh, in particular, if it was Renault Nissan, it would balance out their geographical footprint, you know, because you you would have all the three main continents covered. So, you know, there there is potentially some appeal there. 
and, and maybe you know you could also consider Maserati as a selling point okay obviously it's not a Ferrari obviously it's still work in progress but it is in the luxury space which as you know is very you know can be very profitable I mean if you get it right so I think I see that as a potential selling point but um, one more thing I would like to add uh, obviously I mean Fiat Chrysler is in a better shape now thanks to Marchione that it was a few years back can afford to play the waiting game a little longer given that you know there's interest out there but you know ultimately it will have to find a partner because you know especially if we have the sort of mergers like you know Renault Nissan the players are starting to become too big for FCA mm. to be able to stand alone I think. And, and I think the feeling certainly amongst kind of bankers that look at this and and, and you know the CEOs is, is it, it's not just fear Pro- probably Peugeot need, needs a deal as well maybe in the long term. I mean, I, I read a piece recently saying that Daimler and BMW um, should try and get together. Mm. Um, but what just just one issue that kind of hangs over all a lot of these potential combinations, as far as I can tell, um, is is if you look at the shareholder register of a lot of these big companies, and they're, they're extremely noisy. You have kind of a lot of controlling families like the Fords, you have the Agnellis, um, you have the Peugeot family, you know, in, in Volkswagen, you have the Porsche family, and then you have kind of government shareholders all over the place. Um, and it's just, it's very hard to imagine them all kind of sitting happily alongside each other on the, in, you know, after a merger on the same shareholder register. All right, folks, I'm going to slam the brakes on the discussion for now. Sorry, another car maker pun, but it sounds like we'll have plenty more to discuss in the near future. So thanks both for coming on the show. Thanks to you, Liam, in London. Thank you very much. See you soon. And thanks to you in uh, Milan, Lisa, as well. Thank you and see you soon. Thanks very much both for coming on. Earlier this week, Apple unveiled a new services line. It is basically rolling out products that's trying to attack media, finance, news, gaming. Rob Siren, we were both looking at this. It seems absolutely kind of bonkers, and we can go through and tick through the reasons why we think that. But like, first, let's just set it up, talk a little bit about what Apple um, did and kind of the, the context behind it, like what so, this means. So yeah, so, so Apple, the problem is that smartphones aren't growing anymore. Um, pretty much everyone in the world, not just America, has a smartphone now. Yeah. Um, and the question is, there are only a cer- certain number of people that can afford uh, an iPhone. And what Apple had been doing previously, the past couple of quarters, they were raising the prices on their devices. Um, and that worked for a while. Then eventually, last two quarters, suddenly, hey, they were, sales weren't growing. They, they were, weren't doing well at all. And people were starting to question, okay, so maybe they aren't um, going to be able to keep on raising prices. So they have to look for growth somewhere else. And what Apple has found, they've, they've, they've realized, is that um, they can sell more services to existing iPhone users. And this is their big push. And they, they identified four big areas, at least, that they want to, that you mentioned, where they yeah. want to get profits from it. But we both had the same impression watching this. It seemed a bit diffuse and yeah. also, um, you know, it was a two-hour presentation and none of them were particularly, like, struck me as being, like, you know, a must-have. I watched this entire thing and I thought, eh. Nothing was really compelling. So, so, so let's start with the news product because that was kind of the first thing that they mm-hmm. unveiled. So it's a newsstand, which they've always had for a while now. And it was really just, com- I thought it was a th- dud it's like okay so you can subscribe to this thing for ten dollars a month more or less 
and you get access to 300 magazines like People and Cosmopolitan and like a smattering of newspapers, the Los Angeles Times and the Wall Street Journal. And that's it. And it's like, okay, why is this compelling? Why would I want to, as a reader, subscribe to this thing? Yeah, for, for a second, I remember when, when it came out, they had, you get the Wall Street Journal too. And I thought, oh, great, you know, with the yeah. amount of money you spend on a Wall Street Journal subscription, it's like, if you subscribe to this Apple product, you get the journal subscription and you get all this other stuff for free, you know, yeah. and, and it's like a typical bundle. It sounds great. And then, you know, you find out a bit later, well, actually, the journal's giving them a selection of stories. Yeah, you know, of course, because not... <laughs> why would the journal give everything away in the store? They're like a subscription product of their own. They're going to tightly control what they're going to give to Apple. They should tightly control what they're going to give to Apple. And there are notable uh, absences on um, the newsstand, which is the New York Times and the Washington Post. And clearly, they are much more cautious about letting Apple, you know, Pick, cherry pick their content, which I think is something that, that Apple wanted to do. All right, so let's turn next to um, uh, Apple Plus TV, which this is one of my favorite subjects with mm-hmm. Apple because, like, for you know, I, I would say at least a decade again that, that Apple has been tinkering at the margins with television and, and like not quite sure, like you know, they do the the Apple TV, which mm-hmm. is honestly I think Roku is a much better product, but like okay, so that was meh, you know, and they've been like rumors and speculation that they're going to launch their own like Netflix killer and they're going to or even go off and buy like a media company like Disney Mm -hmm. or something like that. None of these things have materialized. So this was going to be the big reveal for Apple. And it's like (laughs) they unveil something. And I've been following this industry for a really long time. I still cannot tell you what they unveiled. It is so confusing that I'm like, I don't get it. It's some sort of app that has some things that you can get, like Showtime and maybe HBO, and then they're going to have, like, Steven Spielberg walked on stage and started talking about amazing stories <laughs> and what it meant to him as a child. And it was just like, this is utterly confusing. I have no yeah, idea what this it, thing it is. It was telling a couple of things. First off, they didn't give the price, right. I don't think, on it. Which, because there's which, a lot of different things, you know, I believe. It, it, there are a lot of TV offerings out there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you have to... I. An important thing to me, if I were to decide, you know, I'd be like, okay, how much does it cost per month and how much do I pay for Netflix and yeah. HBO Now? Um, and the other thing was just how many, like you're saying, how many stars there were out there. It was, it was, it's obviously they took out a very, very large checkbook. because they had, they had Steven Spielberg. Who else did they have on? They had, they had um, Reese Witherspoon, Jennifer, Jennifer Aniston. Jennifer Aniston, yeah. Um, they had Steve Carell. They had uh, Oprah Winfrey. So these are big buck people. You know, they don't get out of bed for more than, uh, for less than a couple million dollars, I imagine. Um, and that brings to mind, okay, so what, what is Apple trying to solve and how are they doing that? And it's, as you point out, it's unclear what they're trying to do. And the way they seem to be doing it is probably via large, uh, <laughs> large, large amount of cash. Yeah. Because there are there's there's so much television being produced now. Just um, you know who is it? It's, Netflix is producing I don't know how many shows. It seems like every time I turn it on, there's a new sh- series yeah, they've produced. Right. Um, there's you know HBO of course keeps on producing it. You've got Amazon producing a huge number of uh, shows, and 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 it seems like everyone is trying to get into this content thing, and so. If Apple is just bringing its checkbook, that's not well, that's not going to be sufficient. What's uncharacteristic about Apple is it seems very scattershot, right? It's like, here's the thing. Either you do one of two things. You acquire or you build. So you either go off and you buy a media company and you subsume it and, you know, take the content and do whatever. Right now, that does not seem to be one of the options that 
Apple wants to pursue, right? I mean, mm -hmm. for, for a long time, there have been rumors about them buying stuff, and it, they just haven't done that. Okay, so then what are you going to do? You're going to do the Netflix model, which is you're going to go out and build it. But even here, it's like, okay, they're going to spend a billion dollars. But, I mean, Netflix is spending way more than that. It's like Apple is sitting on a ton of cash. It's like they could... They could really go out there and build something significant if that's what they wanted to do. But that doesn't seem like what they're doing here. They're like, okay, we're going to pay Reese Witherspoon something. And they have deals with other people. She's with HBO, for example. Um, or, you know, we're going to, you know, see if we can convince, you know, Showtime to be distributed. It's like, it just seems like it's just everything, you yeah, know? I was trying to figure out what they are trying to do. And, and you know, you can never write out Apple, of course, because no. they, yeah. they they have succeeded in multiple things. So I was thinking, okay, what are they trying? How could they possibly succeed? And I came about two things. Maybe you've got more. Um, first off, well, they've got obviously money, and they've got a lot of users who you know use their phones, and that's a ready-made audience. They could be a niche, perhaps. It seemed like a lot of the people they brought on stage were. Um, aimed at women basically um mm -hmm. you know so it could be that you know hollywood doesn't tends to underproduce the amount of shows that women watch and, and you know it, hollywood always seems surprised that a movie aimed at women does tremendously well at the box office and then they forget about it the next time they, yeah, <laughs> they right, finance right. a movie so and there's also they also kind of made a swipe at um with kids programming too and obviously there's a lot of controversy around youtube for kids yeah and so maybe that may be an audience you know hey apple has a reputation for curating things carefully like in their app store you know you know that if you go to the app store you're probably going to get a you know the app may not be great but it'll be safe it won't be have some malware in it you know, like which, is, which is probably not going to pop. Yeah, yeah, which is different from, you know, store. Android. And so they may be doing trying to do something like that. They may have, you know, like, hey, you know, we'll have limited offerings, but they'll be great. You know, if, if you're a mom and if you've got kids, you know, or if you're a dad, you know, this is going to be a thing you can watch. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's some other things. I don't know. But those are the, the things that struck me is maybe they have an opening yeah. there. So let, let's but let, before we go, let's talk uh, the, the one of the other things that they unveiled, which was the, um, the credit card. And um, I thought this was Apple's most promising, compelling offer of, of, the, of the whole entire presentation. And so basically what they're doing is it's just kind of an extension of Apple Pay from what I can tell is that they're teaming up with Goldman Sachs. They're offering this consumer credit card that uh, obviously sits in your iPhone um, and it is doing a, a variety of things, including this cash back kind of program where yeah. it's 3% daily cash back if you use your card in, say, an Apple store. It's 2% um, cash back and, you know, just using it on the phone anywhere that it's accepted. And then if you actually have an, the actual card, which doesn't have a number, it's very sleek and it's kind of cool looking, you get 1% daily cash back. Now, there are Thousands of credit cards and thousands of credit card offers and all these sort of things. But this this seems to me the most compelling um, aspect of, of what they unrolled and how it, it could actually be pretty sticky if they get this correct. Yeah, there are a couple of things they've got in their favor. First off, um, you know, everybody must have been hacked at least a couple of times with yes. their credit cards. I mean, how I many times do you have to change your card, like yeah. in some account, like your Netflix account or whatever it is? And, and so, it's... you know, okay, so Apple, you know, they're known for having you know, pretty good security. And so there may, they may have some advantages there. Um, the other thing is they've got brand. Um, and if, you know, you know, if you have this 
card, <laughs> this card without a number. You know, it's kind of cool looking. It, it may inspire some people to do that. And it, it's it's one of these sorts of things that it obviously makes sense for Apple just because, you know, a a lot of their users are probably going to buy, you, you know, going to use this credit card. And then, and then also it'll encourage people to use their the Apple Pay, which they also get money from because they get the 2% cash back. And so if you can use one service offering to, you know, get additional sales in another service offering, it seems like it's probably a, a good idea. You know, the other but the thing is, does it move the needle at Apple? Is it big enough to make a huge difference in their bottom line? Um, probably not. We'll see. It could be, you know, it, it, people do spend a lot of money and it is recurring revenue. So it's, it's nice to have for Apple. Yeah. But is it enough to, you know, was it worth a, a two hour presentation? Uh, not so sure about that. Yeah, I have to. All right, Rob. Well, thank you very much for coming on the program. I appreciate it. You're welcome. I'm Robin Mack here in Hong Kong with Pete Sweeney, who has just returned from Shenzhen after touring Chinese telecoms equipment maker Huawei. Now, the company has been under a lot of scrutiny and backlash on U.S. allegations of spying and IP theft. And Huawei is now on an unprecedented PR and charm offensive. Pete, tell us about your visit to Huawei and, you know, what are your general impressions of the company after your visit? Well, it was, for one thing, uh, I recommend everybody visit Huawei if you can, simply because it's such a massive thing. Uh, you know, the they've got their headquarters in, in Shenzhen, which is, you know, um, everything is kind of fenced off and, and very secure. Um, but the uh, the new campus in Dongguan that they've just built, um, which is going to have an R&D center and a manufacturing facility, R&D is going to have 18,000 people alone in this one thing, is laid out like a bunch of European cities. It's it's a, this amazingly surreal experience. You go around in this little train. Um, they've got a version of Verona, a version of Paris, a version of Heidelberg. There's a giant lake in the middle where there's three tame black swans, which are symbolic of something. Um, behind all of that, Huawei is clearly on the defensive and the best defense is a good offense and that's what they're doing. Um, so there's this big push to like bring in the foreign media to hire former journalists as, as media representatives to make this big show of being transparent. And that's been coupled with kind of a push to uh, reach out to, to policymakers and regulators and companies in Europe um, in the developing world elsewhere in Asia to offset this U.S. pressure, which is saying that basically this is this nefarious state-owned firm that's here to steal your data and steal your IP and uh, and conquer the world. So has it been effective then? I mean, you went to the company, you you know spoke with the rotating chairman, Eric Schufer, you know, at length. Did they address any of those questions or concerns about, you know, cybersecurity or spying? Yeah, well, we got this massive presentation on the cybersecurity issue. So, so Huawei is very much pushing um, that, you know, they can have their hardware validated by third parties, which is the way most people do it, right? Um, and there's a certain degree of logic there because, you know, national origin of a manufacturer and security have very little to do with each other. Allegedly, Chinese security services managed to hack, you know, U.S. government databases. Those databases aren't running Chinese hardware. Um, conversely, the Edward Snowden revelations showed that uh, the NSA had penetrated Huawei, you know, stolen their source code, uh, listened in on their emails. Um, so the whole point of like, you know, don't assume that just because we're Chinese, we can be spied on. Let's, let's have it tested by somebody who specializes in that. That's valid. And that was convincing. In terms of how convinced other people are, it does look like some traction has been found. Um, the European Commission just said that 
we will not make a blanket ban on Huawei hardware in our networks. We're going to you know, consider the security application. We're not just going to rule it out. Um, the United Kingdom has also kind of softened its stance. This is all very much to the disappointment of the United States, which is threatening to, to cut off um, exchanges of, of intelligence sharing information with countries that have Huawei, Huawei hardware in their networks. Eric Xu uh, did, not, did not gloat. Um, he did say that he did seem pleased, um, but he did say he didn't feel like a decisive corner had been turned. Um, the U.S. can bring a lot of pressure to bear still, and, and that, that's still very much underway. Right. So speaking of pressure, then, um, the company is expected to report their financial results this week. Um, is there anything that we can expect? I mean, do you think well, we that... Can expect, <laughs> we can expect <laughs> yeah. another media circus is what we can. Um, so they're going to have a two-hour press conference for this where they're going to let, you know, over 100 reporters, I think, throw just Q&As at them. Um, we'll see what comes of that. But financially, you know, most of, the, most of the business clouds are still sort of on the horizon here. Two key points. For one thing, Huawei has never done a lot of business in the United States in the first place. So there is no correction in the U.S. market that would really make a difference. Um, the threat is in future revenue lines from, from Europe and what. And the threat is to 5G, which is also a, a technology that is, not, that is being rolled out now. Is probably not going to be generating a bunch of profit first. First, you have to invest. Um, these telecoms have to put it in. So, um, you know, it's going to take a bit for that to show up. Right. Um, and it and seems like their other businesses, like smartphones, are doing quite well in the meantime. Yeah, well, well you would right? tell me. Yeah. I mean, they, they seem to be doing quite well on the smartphones. And they're also going into their own chip line. What's your assessment of how that's going? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, besides smartphones, the company is also going into laptops and TV sets, um, you know. And their biggest advantage over rivals like Xiaomi is that everything is made in-house. So chips, for example, you know, which is quite an expensive component to buy. Um, you know, they design their own chipsets um, and they're actually quite advanced. And for China, this is a you know, great deal of source and pride for them to be able to catch up with Western rivals on this front. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 because whoever you talk to, be they uh, threatened by Huawei or, or friendly to it. I mean, everybody's fairly impressed by what this company has achieved in terms of hardware. I mean, this, these guys are started out in, you know, some a shack in Shenzhen with 21,000 RMB investment capital, um, you know, and they had a very private beginning. So, I mean, to a certain extent, the, the, the suspicions or the accusations that this is a, a state company, you are kind of based on a misunderstanding. I mean, this company is technically owned by its employees. They're trying to make a lot of hay out of that. They invited me to come into their shareholder registry, and I got to leaf through these, these books of, you know, employees' names and their, their employee numbers and how many shares they hold. Yeah, they make decent hardware at a decent price. Um, you know, the suspicions about are, or the, the allegations are that, that they've cheated, you know, that, uh, that basically, you know, they've, they've stolen a lot of IP, um, that they had a formal program um, to encourage employees to steal IP, and, uh, and also that they get all the support from state banks, you know, through, say, vendor financing. Like, you know, Eric Shu was very emphatic that, like, you know, we don't provide vendor fi financing to people who buy our products, which is, you know, fine, because they don't have to, right? They have China Development Bank and these other guys kind of riding behind them. So, I mean, they, they have this kind of mixed situation in terms of their image, you know, the successful company. And the question is, are you threatened by them or not? And that kind of depends on how you think, how strong you think Beijing's backing is for them. Right. So on balance, like, do you think this is a company that's controlled by Beijing and will do what Beijing says? 
I mean, that's the million dollar question. I mean, certainly whatever Huawei wants people to think about how independent it is, Beijing, the Chinese Communist Party is sending very different signals through other channels. Um, and this, a lot of this might not be under Huawei's control. But for example, with the media push, you know, a lot of journalists receives invitations to a media, a Huawei media tour, you know, through the Chinese embassy. Um, state media has run these videos of children singing the praises of Huawei. Um, and it looks like also uh, this, this, this issue with the detention of Meng Wanzhou, the CFO in Canada. Um, she's Run Zhengfei's daughter. She's been detained for the potential extradition to the United States to face charges related to bank fraud, related to Iran sanctions. Anyways, like Beijing has clearly taken that very seriously. You know, two Canadians have been detained and held largely incommunicado. Huawei had nothing to do with this. Obviously, it's not a law enforcement mechanism, but uh, the Chinese ambassador to Canada took the trouble to write an op-ed, which basically insinuated that, you know, this is in fact tit for tat. Um, the Chinese government has started cutting back on canola shipments from Canada. Um, so there's this, whatever Huawei thinks it is, you know, clearly Beijing says this is a national treasure and we need to protect it. So when you have Ren Zhengfei say, you know, like, we will not put back doors into our hardware, even if Beijing says so, you know, if a spy comes to me and says, put in a back door, I'm going to shut down the company. Well, is, is Beijing going to let him get away with that? You know, and if you believe the answer is yes, then, you know, you can trust Huawei. But if you believe the answer is no, then of course, everything else is under question. Right. So I guess that's the heart of the key issue surrounding Huawei and, and the U.S. allegations against this company. Yeah, it is. And, and, and fundamentally, the ball is more in, in the Chinese government's court than it is uh, in, in the, under the control of Huawei itself. Yeah, that's um, fascinating, Pete. Thank you. Thanks, Robin. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Lisa Yucca, Robin Mack, Rob Siren, Pete Sweeney and Liam Proud for coming on the show and, of course, to co-host Jennifer Sabre. We extend our gratitude, as always, to our producers, Freddie Joyner and Andrew D'Antonio. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room and our other podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes. And please do share your opinions about our shows. And join us again next week for another edition.